You know, when I first started out in the ad business, there were a few big players that we all aspired to. And at the top of that list was J. Walter Thompson, also known as JWT. Look, this agency was an institution. Some say it was America's first ad agency. See, back in the late 1800s, around the time when the first Kodak camera was introduced, Thompson had the great idea to hire writers and artists to create engaging ad content for clients, you know, eclipsing the characteristically plain ads made by in-house businesses. And thus, they widened the scope of what agencies could do and create. You could say they created creative. Fast forward over a century later to 2018. J. Walter Thompson was merged with Wonderman, a global digital agency which recently expanded into consulting and data analytics. Forbes referred to JWT's end as, quote, a metaphor of the demise of Madison Avenue. Now, it's sad to see this legendary agency go. But for anyone who's been paying attention, this wasn't exactly shocking. I think a lot of us were waiting for the other shoe to drop. Advertising agencies who've been struggling to adapt to a landscape suddenly dominated by Google and Facebook are witnessing consulting firms with their big data and digital expertise and cozy relationships with the C-suite. Well, we're seeing them become serious competitors in our field. I realized that the ad industry is going through somewhat of a coup d'etat. And if it's happening in my industry, well, I bet it's happening in others, too. But the thing about a coup, well, if you're talking about it, that means it's already happened. You will not be able to in the early 1970s, Gil Scott Heron released The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And I don't know that there's a better theme song for what we're going through in business right now. I mean, the example that a lot of us use is that no one saw Netflix coming and Blockbuster woke up one day and it was just gone. All of it. Why? Well, because the revolution will not be televised. You think current industry leaders are going to get a press release from the people who are nipping at their heels? No. Look, we're used to seeing coups occur in politics. I mean, take Trump. Most of us didn't actually expect him to win, did we? The Apprentice blowhard? No! The Trump victory wasn't an election victory at all. It was a coup of the establishment. Even if he himself was part of it. He didn't promise slightly different solution. He promised a completely different playbook altogether. And the establishment isn't just falling on Capitol Hill. It's being taken down in pretty much every category. Go ahead, pick an industry and you'll see it. Welcome to Uber. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. The hotel industry has it out for Airbnb. New grassroots companies are coming from out of nowhere to challenge and topple the old guard. I mean, Blue Apron and Chef's Plate are usurping the Saturday morning grocery store experience. Financial advisor apps like Wealthsimple and Robinhood are granting millennials access to money management that banks haven't provided. Uber, well, Uber. Look, nearly every existing product and service we use in our daily lives has been conveniently reimagined and perfected by these startup boutiques. And guess what? In most cases, no one saw them coming. But no matter what the new kid is peddling, they'll need to come up with a pretty convincing way to sell people on it. And I don't know, look, because advertising is so foundational to pretty much every business, 
I somehow thought maybe my industry would be immune to this shakeup. Yeah, I know. Throughout this series, we're going to explore how rebels, insurgents, and disruptors are overthrowing old systems and giving gatekeepers across industries a run for your money. We're going to begin by looking at how this is happening in the ad business right under my nose. So light your torches. Get ready to storm the castle. This is The Coup. I'm an agency guy. My name is Ron Tite. I own a marketing and branding company called Church and State. And when I woke up today, my biggest competitor wasn't another agency. It was Deloitte. You know, the international consulting firm, the guys who deal with the intellectual property and the strategy and all that. Yeah. And they weren't the exception either. Advertising, as you may have guessed, has changed a lot. Why we be? I ordered by Gallo, and I don't mind telling you why. Big Mac fries. Play for it. The Mets are heading to Atlanta. Don't you drive one of those expensive sports cars? Take care of you, right down to your skin. Avina, prepare yourself for the radical new Omega. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat. From about the mid-century to just before the digital age, there were ads like those you found in magazines, billboards, on the radio, and of course. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger. We... He likes it. Hey, Mikey. When you bring life home, don't tell the kids it's one of those nutritional cereals you've been trying to get them to eat. Oh, the only one TV was king. And then the internet came along. Attention started to get fractured, and so did clients' budgets. The opportunity for ad placements, as you likely already know, had become endless. And clients wanted to hit every single platform. And agencies? Well, we used to create four things. Now we create 400. And the budget hasn't gone up. The rules changed and they're still changing. Ad agencies, once the right hand of any client, suddenly had to jostle for business as budgets were cut and new platforms like Google, Facebook, and Instagram completely changed the game. The clients of ad agencies have had enough. You know, tired of fat margins and a lack of innovation from their agency partners and insufficient proof that their dollars were getting them the results they wanted. So after years of the same structure and the same ecosystem and the same players with the same job titles, well, now those once loyal clients are ready to take their business elsewhere. But where are they going to go? Enter the consultants. Last year, four consulting businesses cracked AdAge's ranking of the 10 largest agencies in the world. Accenture, IBM, PwC, and Deloitte. Wait, how are they, the suits crunching numbers and making spreadsheets, going to be the artists in a field that requires art? Oh, this is huge. 
But as much as it may feel like it, consultancies didn't become our biggest competitors overnight. Brad Whipple, former ad agency exec and now senior managing director of Accenture Interactive, said this, We don't believe brands are built from advertising anymore. They're built from an amalgamation of customer experiences. So that is what we're focused on. Wait, are the consultants eating our lunch? And so, does this spell the end of the traditional ad agency? And, and wait, did I pick the wrong time to start an ad agency? Okay, first, I'm going to try not to have an identity crisis. And second, we got to figure out how we got here. Bill Sharp is the former chairman of Havas Canada, who's had clients like Dell, Apple, PayPal, the list goes on. He's a friend, and he was my first boss in advertising. Now, if advertising is in the middle of its own disruption, Bill has an idea of how it happened. Where I think the downfall of advertising started was the tech crash of 2000. Because what that did is, if you remember, Microsoft had just been kind of broken up. The browser battle, all that kind of stuff, etc. And that enabled Google to sneak in, start in, in 98. And then in the next couple of years, all of a sudden, Facebook then Apple realigns itself and reinvents itself and yeah. comes and comes out and then Amazon gets stronger. So in all of those things, they for me were they were kind of like interesting, but I didn't really see them coming centrally into advertising. Yep. Okay. But that was the beginning of a gradual decline. So I basically think that decline lasted from two thousand to the recession of two thousand and eight. Yep. So that was you know it was feeling the heat, et cetera. If you remember, we took over, you know, a digital company. And yep. what the hell did they do? And yeah. you know, it, was, it was the first generation of digital. It wasn't very good, et cetera. Yep. A lot of clients were spending a lot of money and wasting a lot of money. Yeah. But then in 2008, everybody got hit. Every single client we had in some way, shape, or form cut their budget. Yep. And previous to 2008, we were on several retainers. All of those stopped, never came back. And... When it did come back, the scrutiny that advertising was under became more and more intense. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know what? You're not that relevant anymore. As a matter of fact, you're increasingly irrelevant. And then to me, from 2008 to around probably to last year, it just, the decline went wham. Like a typical yeah. S-curve adoption, you know, when it yeah. really, really hits that, that incline. That's what happened. Everything kind of collapsed. And in that instance, you know, the the holding company's solution cut. Okay, so that's the brief history on how rapid tech developments and world events made the ad industry ripe for disruption. But what was going on internally just before all of that? You know, one of the overall themes for me in our industry has been the erosion of trust. Okay. Yep. To me, it went from gradual kind of like eh, the water's getting kind of hot but i'm not must just be warm water right and then all of a sudden really escalating and then to almost structural like no trust whatsoever you're gonna fuck me and and everything else that's happened in terms of the fraud and online display and you know bots all that kind of stuff has only like Completely and totally destroyed. I can tell you of 
a media department that I know very well that went from running two to three percent margins to thirty five percent margins Whoa. in about two years, right? And you know, and that's because they had their own trading desk. They had their because they had their own trading desk. That's because they brought all this stuff in, et cetera. Clients weren't doing the correct level of audits, so clients felt that they were getting this. Yeah, and yet nobody could prove it. Right. They could. They and then eventually, now what you see is B and G, Unilever, et cetera, all putting the hammer down and going, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah. And by the way, Facebook and Google, hey, fuck you and fuck you <laughs> yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. now you have a situation where the rarest commodity of all is actually trust. Loss of trust. And really, I mean, I've felt that shift. Clients and agencies, once we had relationships, even even friendships, and those suddenly started to get quieter. I still remember in this one meeting, uh, I brought up the budget for a shoot, and the client said, no, 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 don't talk to me about it. Talk to this person we just hired. See, the clients had introduced a third wheel into our once cozy dynamic, the cost consultant. And I just thought, you just outsourced that responsibility to them, just like you had originally outsourced it to me. And that cost consultant, well, they would do one of two things. See, if the client was going to be in the room, well, of course, he'd show up in his minivan. If the client wasn't going to be in the room, he'd show up in his Porsche. The person they hired to make sure I was in line was driving a fucking Porsche. I drove a Volvo. From then on, when it came to talking out the numbers, and really, it's all about the money, we just had to go through the cost consultant. And the client? Well, we just kind of stopped talking. So now, not only do consultants feel that they can offer more thorough receipts and insights, they also feel they have the ability to provide better tech deployment and creative than ad agencies, too. And those kinds of quantitative deliverables are attractive to clients who are trying to tighten their belt. Because what they really need to know is where their very little money they have is being spent. And more importantly, where's it working? But here's what I don't really get. Why are consulting companies interested in getting into this game in the first place? I've never understood it. I mean, it can't just be the money. I mean, these are massive global organizations. They have Monet on the walls. And they're interested in making car commercials? The low-rent stuff? Can someone explain this to me? My name is Bruce Philp, and I am a branding consultant. In addition to that work, I'm also a columnist for Canadian Business Magazine and occasionally for McLean's, and I've written a couple of books about branding. I mean, I think there are probably three things that are uh, that have made this interesting now in a way that it wasn't the case, you know, 20 years ago. The first one is that, you know, chief marketing officers in, you know, certainly sort of tier one companies are becoming larger purchasers and deployers of technology than even CTOs are. So the consulting industry, they understand that game very well. And, and from, from their point of view, this is just an extension of an existing skill set. So that's, that's number one. Um, two has been sort of the digital transformation of marketing. Um, and I'm making air quotes with my fingers right now, um, which, you know, was sort of based on this idea of test and learn and optimize and, um, you know, whatever 
can be measured matters and whatever can't be measured doesn't matter. And then more recently, uh, the layering on of programmatic media buying. Well, these are very objective uh, processes that can be optimized and streamlined and are all about you know, timely, accurate metrics. Well, again, that plays directly into the hands um, of consulting companies in the sense that they possess those skills already. And then the third one um, that I think doesn't get talked about very much, but is actually super important, is that as marketing services has become more uh, complex, a CMO might now be operating on 20 or 30 platforms uh, rather than the three or four that he was operating on or she was operating on, you know, in the 80s. And of course, that's resulted in, you know, any credible agency out there is probably going to specialize in something. And uh, specialization is, you know, becoming a more common than not in the agency ecosystem. So this great gap has opened up between CMOs and agencies where strategy used to live. And, um, and so that gap is being filled by all kinds of creatures, including people like me. But certainly, um, if you're talking about big global uh, enterprises, uh, companies like Accenture have got to be fascinated by the opportunity that's there. Okay, so we're going to talk to a consulting guy in a sec, because, hey, I got some questions. But let's back up a minute. How exactly did agencies lose the plot here? Was it simply a lack of strategy, or was there something else? Some kind of tipping point within the industry that caused the structure to come tumbling down? This may kind of bring out the pitchforks and torches, but I, I kind of think it was the strategy piece. And, and the process kind of began to unfold kind of at the end of the 80s and the early 90s when, when a couple of things happened. One was that um, we went through this terrible recession in the early 90s, and uh, out the other end of that came uh, this concept of delayering and re-engineering organizations so that... Um, you know, in brand management, for example, you might once have had, you know, four or five layers between a division VP and a brand coordinator, and then that got shrunk down to two. Well, the agency business in the meantime had developed parallel structures. So if there were five layers of brand management, there were five layers of account management. And what happened was that you learned by apprenticeship. Your, if you were a coordinator, your work was red penned by an ex account executive. And if you were an AE, your work was red penned by a supervisor and so on. So, you know, marketers delayered and then so did agencies. And it, with that was lost um, this apprenticeship system. But the apprenticeship system was never replaced with anything. We stopped training people. Um, we just, you know, kind of let things kind of unfold organically and didn't really take charge. And you could see that. I mean, I remember writing about this at the time. So it shouldn't have been a, a shock to anybody. The second thing that happened possibly because of that was that we had this influx of um, Gen X creative people in the 90s who were super media literate and in, in a way that no previous generation had ever been. And without the constraints of strategic intent, um, they began to develop advertising that was focused on its entertainment value rather than its persuasive value. And there was this sort of common understanding that if people liked your ad, it probably was working. Ah, the Gen Xers, yeah. Mm-hmm. The MTV generation. Some say the best generation. Okay, that's me. 
As Bruce said, without the limits of strategic intent, we focused on the entertainment value of an ad. And boy, did we ever. We poured over Super Bowl ads for what we convinced ourselves was advertising's big theatrical night. We created catchy punchlines for you to repeat. What's up? We blew budgets with big, huge celebrities. And, well, the memorability of the spot became more important than the company behind it. Years ago, my partner Stacy Hill and I, she's brilliant, we actually created a print ad that featured a dog taking a dump in the park with the headline, Be Accountable. I know. I know! But also, come on, pick up after your freaking dogs. Look, we began to define success by its entertainment value. Now, did that model become absorbed internally in the agencies themselves? I don't know. But when I look at other organizations and other categories and industries, and I think about how that industry might want to transform, you know, their training and development, internal communications, all these things, these are shifts that don't really happen at ad agencies. Did we drink our own Kool-Aid and decide we were too cool, aid, to adopt the real methods of change? Become too focused on becoming fun factories, too focused on the culture, on our image, instead of turning a real profit? Bruce? Well, you know, the enjoyment of producing a big TV campaign um, was probably one of the worst things that ever happened to the advertising industry because it just promoted such jealousy and such, um, you know, opprobrium. And in some, in many cases earned, it, uh, you know, because of the bad behavior financially. And frankly, the, the crappy metrics um, that were used to measure whether that effort was worthwhile. Bad financials and crappy metrics. Yeah, we had some issues. Bill Sharp was recently at a dinner party that included Uwe Stuckman, the marketing lead for Loblaws, a massive grocery chain here in Canada. And he was talking to a bunch of ad agency leads about where and how exactly agencies let this happen. Bill says Uwe looked out at these guys and just said these two words. Mad Men. With all your fancy offices, with all your expensive lunches, with all your... And basically goes into a barrage, a, a, a total frontal attack on these guys. And he ends up saying, you know what my problem is right now? Alexa, what happens if convenience trumps customer experience? Now, can any of you answer that? And so one guy from Kundari you know, attempts to challenge. And he says, well, if you're implying the traditional brand building um, is going to um, change dramatically, then uh, I would have to differ in opinion. And so I've got nothing to lose, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. And I, I say to him, I said, you know, you sound like a Sony music executive in 1999 <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's got, no, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. And you just don't know that in 2001, Steve Jobs is bringing out an iPod, which is going to end the music industry. With their tech meets marketing approach to advertising and their love of strategy, the consultants feel like they've got the resources, the data, and the cash that we don't to usher clients into this new version of advertising. But as a former creative director, I mean, all I gotta say is, what about the artistry? Are the creatives, you know, like the copywriters, the designers, the art directors, the people with the tattoos, are they gonna work for a stuffy consulting firm? The old school corporate world? The man? Well, I talked to one who did. 
John Finkelstein spent years at agencies like Proximity and Henderson Bascone and Grip and Miram. And well, now he's the executive creative director at consulting giant PwC. Finkelstein thinks it's all about how you define creativity in the first place. The people who work in creative departments in management consultants want to solve different types of problems. Well, I had a conversation with somebody from another consulting company. And I said, why aren't you buying agencies right Mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. And he said, because all those people who work for you who have tattoos aren't going to come work here. Mm -hmm. And part of me agrees with that because of the stereotype of what that is and what what's in that building or who's in that building. But it's also, I think to your point, that the real question here is, has creativity been redefined? Yeah. And that agencies are still clinging to this definition of creativity as being an output with the craft of art direction and writing, whereas real, when you look at the real disruptors, it's about creative business models. Yes. It's about creative product. It's about creative process. Yes. And agencies don't have that. Is that fair? I, w- I would agree with that because it was really interesting. If you think about some of the big disruptors, let's go to Bezos for a second. Sure. Do we think that Amazon is a creative platform? Not at all. I'm not talking about the execution of the website. Oh, as a business model? 100%. Okay, so great. And Uber and any of these other transformational businesses, I fucking hate that word, but things that kind of redefine an existing space or an existing um, vertical or whatever industry, I would say so. So that's kind of what we're doing. The execution is incidental. Look, I don't disagree with applying creativity beyond, you know, just ad copy. That spirit of innovation and curiosity is what keeps the company alive. What I am curious about is what type of creative work these firms are doing for clients. John? So we did a 16-week engagement for the federal government. Okay. And they had a lot of problems, as you can imagine, um, for people who work there. Yeah. Right? So there's no sense of, I work for the government of Canada. There's a sense of, I work for the Ministry of Transportation, I work for CRA, I work for whatever. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of IT problems, right, for security reasons. So if Mm -hmm. you work for CRA, your pass doesn't work to get into the Ministry of Transportation building. You might need NIFR computers. They don't have Mm Wi-Fi. The interior design of the place is from the 60s or whatever. Um, Like 40% of uh, their buildings are empty because people want to work from home. It's a disaster. So we spent 16 weeks basically co-creating what the future of the government ought to be like. Hmm. What is it like to work for them? And we took, I don't know, there was probably 70 different personas down to four. Yeah. And we actually co-created and used design thinking to, to solve this problem. Of how do people want to work for the government of Canada? What are the five experiences that they all share, irrespective of where they work? All this kind of good stuff. And then, you know, our our equivalent of planners, our strategy people figured out how to do it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I hate the word playbook, but the first thing that we created was a, was a playbook that works irrespective of uh, what um, part of the government you work for or where you are in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so there was a maturity assessment. There was all kinds huh. of like interesting tool-based stuff yeah. that would help you go from basically shitty or very immature yeah. to mature over a certain amount of time. I came in as an ad guy to this project and I said, you know what? This is probably one of the most important things Shared Services Canada is going to do mm-hmm. in the next 20 years. Yeah. So let's make sure that it's not another one of these Vision 2010 
<laughs> with a picture of the maple leaf on the front and a big binder. Getting there together. Yes. So anyway, we did we did the brand. Yeah. We actually did the identity. We did print. We did video. We did a proper digital experience that incorporates all of all of the tools because there's a lot of tools in here. Yeah. To make this thing work. Right. Right. And all this influenced wayfinding, interior design, signage, all of it. So you think about if you were an agency and you got this brief that said, um, "Hey, we need to do a workforce transformation." Nobody would do it. No, they would. They would just. It's a, it's an internal poster campaign with the, above the urinals that says, "Aren't you proud to work here, Team Canada?" That's it. And I have a shot of the dude scoring the goal in 1972, whatever his name is. What was that? I say Tim Horton. <laughs> Paul Henderson, and that would and that would be it. Yeah. So I get all that front end work. I totally get that front end work. That's big transformational work. Why do you want to do the poster? Because it's part of the thing. We could have gone to an agency to execute it, but we didn't need to. That's, yeah. Cause, that's cause, kind of my point, right? Yeah. I could have gone to a branding agency. Or I could have gone to characters, say, hey, I need someone to do an identity, but I don't need to. Right. Because I have someone who studied at OCAD. Yeah, yeah. Who does brand identity and say, hey, let's do a brand identity for this. They're, they weren't expecting any of it, Ron. That's the whole fucking point. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, cool. And then we're like, they're getting work from PwC that they didn't know how good it could be. Okay, yeah, that's different than what we do. So the consultants are stepping into the ring. Big deal. I mean, come on. There's already serious competition in this industry when it comes to making engaging, compelling work. I would say award-winning competition even. My friend Tony Miller, who's executive creative director at Anderson DDB, jokes that when he mentions he's made award-winning work, the response from the general public is always the same. You people give each other awards? Yeah, yeah, we do. And the mother of it all, the Oscars of advertising, if you will, is cans or con or cons. I've never really know which way you're supposed to say it. That's what John and I got talking about. If you're not familiar, Cannes is in France. There's also a little indie film festival there. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Anyway, just before the film festival is AdCon. All the big names in the ad agency world and much of the old guard go to pat themselves on the back and collect their trophies. So surely it would be a brief respite from the holier-than-thou consultants. Or at least that's what I thought. Were you guys at Cannes this year? Uh, the U.S. firm was, yeah. What? Come on! That is where the established, that is everything that is wrong about the traditional advertising model with the, with the bullshit clothes and the bullshit egos and the sitting on a yacht and spending tons of money is ad con. Everybody is that this is the, the definition of advertising still having its head up its ass. Is there a and question? you guys are there. Is there a question? Why do you go? Why? If you're so, if the consulting company is so different and so unique, solving different problems, why are you there? Well, I wasn't there. <laughs> well, why, were you, why were your colleagues there? <laughs> what does the, the adage, keep, keep your friends close, keep your enemies even closer? No, I, I think they were there to show. I, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if it was a recruiting mission. I think they went down there to, to show people that there's another way of problem solving yeah. and another way to do work and another way to make meaning as a creative person than just making ads. And I think for them, it was probably that kind of mission, not a fact-finding mission, but a fact-finding mission for others. So like, there's another, there's yeah, another door sure. here. I don't think they weren't, they weren't there to collect awards. Um, wouldn't surprise me if they were on a yacht. Oh, these things are important to you people? Mm-hmm, yeah, says the new order. All right, I guess we can win a few of those. 
But according to Bruce Philp, there's something traditional advertising can do that most data-first consultants can't. Something that's indispensable in tapping into exactly how we're all naturally motivated to want something. Hey, uh, Bruce, can you take us back to the early 2000s? At about the same time as I was talking about earlier, you you started to see uh, Silicon Valley rise up largely on the premise that advertising was a corrupt and unnecessary uh, you know, feature of modern life. And, you know, when, when uh, Larry and Sergey submitted their... Just in case you don't know, those are the Google founders. Uh, you know, thesis at Stanford, they actually took the position that in a perfect search engine would obviate the need for brands at all. Um, now, obviously, they've changed their minds about that, but that was the original sort of predicate upon which Google was built. So cool, um, but but a that's not a new thought. I mean, Claude Hopkins wrote Scientific Advertising in 1923, and there's really not a principle in that book that is greatly different from what um, you know lots of digital marketers practice today. Um, and the flaw in Hopkins' thinking and the flaw in Larry and Sergey's thinking is the same, which is that people don't always know what they want or even that they want something. You know, we. We have built the economy, um, we have built the modern world on the idea that um, that people can discover things they want entirely by accident through passive exposure. And in the digital world, they call this the top of the funnel, and I think they use this expression a little bit mindlessly. But, you know, the fact is, if I'm looking for, a, you know, a skin cream or a shampoo or a you know, pair of snow boots. Or, yeah, I can search and find the ones that, you know, seem to fit the bill and I can order them and have them delivered. But nothing that ever happens online um, is ever going to be able to, to accomplish what can happen when I when my head is turned by a gorgeous car in the street um, or, or somebody comes out with a new motorcycle and I have enough motorcycles, but that motorcycle makes me sweat just to look at it and now I want it. And search can't do that and a banner ad can't do that. And, you know, most of the things that we totemize these days uh, can't do that because they're consumer-led experiences. So, you know, back in the day, um, advertising did have its um, moments of glory. And when that happened, it was because uh, huge numbers of people could be influenced by something that they'd never imagined. And uh, that's what we haven't found a substitute for. Look, the ecosystem of how ad agencies have been run may be in its sunset years. But I don't think that beautiful design and creative execution to persuade and entertain people into wanting something is going anywhere. It's just how it's all deployed and who's involved that's evolving, I guess. Look, boutiques will continue to survive, but they've got to keep reinventing themselves. And I guess it looks like that's the real trend. Reinvention. As industries, as companies, and as people. We're going to take a look at this phenomenon in all kinds of industries this season. Maybe even yours. Because the revolution may not be televised, but now, my friends, it is available wherever you get podcasts. I'd like to thank my guests, Bill Sharp, Bruce Philp, and John Finkelstein. The Coup is made by Church and State Podcasts for the Rogers Frequency Podcast Network. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and if you know anyone who might like it, let them know. This episode was written by Julia De Laurentiis Johnson and edited by Ali Graham. It was produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnson, and it was mixed by Chandra Bullock. 
Original theme music is by the great Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Artless. And I'm your host and executive producer, Ron Tite. We'll see you next time on The Coup. Try to forget about the other kids and how they make us sweat. But try not to forget or you lose your edge. Don't lose your edge. And by the way, Facebook and Google, hey, fuck you and fuck you <laughs> yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah.